0: Now, if there's anything we should know individually and collectively, it's God's purpose in all of human history. We often think of God's purpose or his plan in the small pictures. What's his purpose for your life? What's his plan for your life? What's His will for you tomorrow or a week from now or in the future? All those individual things about God's plan and purpose for our life. And that's relevant. It's good. It's important. I want you to think about what God's plan and purpose is for you as an individual. But I also want you to be able to sort of pan the camera back in a great big crane shot that looks down on the thing from a panorama and see that God is working out something through all of history. God has a a purpose and a plan in the big picture. What is he trying to do through his great plan of the ages? And I would suggest to you that when you see what God is doing in the big picture, it will have an impact on your life. I I like using the analogy of a soldier. You you, you think of a man who uh, volunteers for the armed forces. He goes to boot camp. He endures all of that physical agony, and, and he thinks of himself as being some absolutely metal, valor winning soldier out there. And what do they do in the wisdom of the United States government and the armed forces? They make him a mechanic. And there he is, working on trucks or jeeps or Humvees or whatever it is that they drive in the military these days. And he's frustrated. He thinks, what good am I doing? I'm supposed to be out there going after the enemy. There's enemies in our country. What am I doing in this big picture? It seems fruitless. It seems useless. And he thinks his job is stupid and it doesn't amount to anything. He feels stuck and useless in the motor pool. But when his army attacks, the maintenance that he did on those individual vehicles is absolutely critical. If the trucks don't run, then the troops and the weapons can't move. And if they can't move, then the army's crippled and the battle is lost. If the battle is lost, then the war is lost. If the war is lost, then the nation perishes. And the mechanics work, even though he has a very hard time seeing it, at the moment it fits into the big picture. Now so does your life's work. Your life's work fits into a picture even bigger than that of that uh, hypothetical army mechanic. It fits into God's great plan of the ages. Now, you say, where do we begin with this great plan of the ages? You say, well, I know where we begin. We begin, if you want to begin at the beginning, you begin at Genesis 1-1, right? I hope you brought your Bibles tonight, but I'm not even going to ask you to turn to Genesis 1-1, right? Because you guys could say it for me, can't you? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's funny how you can memorize that verse without even having to memorize it, right? You just know it. It just falls off. Okay, good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's the beginning, right? Yes and no. Do you know the Bible tells us about an awful lot that happened before God ever created the heavens and the earth? I've got news for you tonight. That's really the theme of my whole study for you tonight. Genesis 1-1 is not the beginning. God did a lot... And God did very important things before the beginning, before Genesis 1-1. So I want you to just think in your mind over the next half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it is we have together. I want you to consider in your mind for a few minutes, what was there before the beginning? Before Genesis 1-1. Well, I think we could answer, first of all, we all know what was there before the beginning. Genesis 1-1 tells you what was there before the beginning. God, Right? Because if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it must be that God existed before the events of Genesis 1 1. Now we know this from the scriptures ourselves, right? The favorite passage I like, just one verse from the prophet Micah. Once you turn there, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll give you a few minutes to find it because it's one of those thin books of the minor prophets. There is no shame in using your table of contents to find Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And let me tell you what I'm going to do here on these Wednesday nights. Uh, Some of the verses I'm going to put up there on the PowerPoint and we're going to look at together. Sometimes I'm just going to put the reference up there. Because I want you to bring your Bibles or your iPhones or whatever it is you have your Bible on these days. I want you to look at it in something that you carry for yourself. Because, you know, I just think there's something good, there's something appropriate, there's something wonderful about it if you're looking at the passage yourself. So sometimes I'll just put the script of reference up there on the PowerPoint, as it is right here, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Other times, maybe for the sake of time, we'll put the verse up there and we'll read it together off of the display. What does it say? Here the prophet Micah describes the Lord God enthroned in heaven as this. He describes Him as the one whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. I like how it speaks of that in the original Hebrew. It speaks of someone who comes from before the vanishing point. Someone who is there Always. God has always existed. People ask the question, maybe your child asks this question to you. Where did God come from? And the proper answer to that question is, well, God didn't come from anywhere. God has always been. No one created God because he is eternal. I like the definition of God that a great scholar that you'll hear me mention from time to time because he's sort of a of a hero of mine. A man named Dr. J. Edwin Orr. And the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr gave a great definition of God. Here it is. Ready? God is the only infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. It would be very profitable for us to take apart that definition word by word. Infinite, that means something, right? I want you to notice eternal. God is eternal. That's what Micah is telling us. That's what Genesis 1 1 tells us. And that's what this great definition of God from the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr tells us. God comes from before the vanishing point in eternity past. By very definition, God is the uncreated being. People act as if, well, well, listen, God must have had origin. You, You have to have a beginning. No. God is the uncreated being. If He's a creature, if He was created by somebody, then He is not the ultimate creator. He's not the first cause. But God is the first cause. He is what we call the uncaused cause. Now, it's really not my point here tonight to give you arguments for the existence of God. Even though we could have a lot of fun doing that here tonight. You know, a few years ago when I was in Germany... I did a lecture one time at a uh, university there. Uh, you know, when I think about it, I could say it in a way that sounds very prestigious, couldn't I? You know, I was lecturing at a German university, and it really wasn't that glamorous. It was just for a student Christian fellowship at a very sort of obscure and not very, you know, high-class unit But it was a university, and it was in Germany. And I was speaking to a group of students, so I'll, I'll take it. And what they asked me to speak on was arguments for the existence of God. Well, you know, you do your research, and I found some great materials, and I came up with a list. Not that I created a list, but I was able to compile it. Twenty arguments for the existence of God. What a great thing that was, and we just went through those very quickly. You have the argument from change, which, of course, is an argument from the cosmological argument. Then you have the argument of efficient causality. That's another aspect of the cosmological argument. You have the argument from time and contingency, the argument from degrees of perfection, the argument from design, which is also known as the teleological argument. You have the Kalam argument, or the argument from eternity. You have the argument from contingency, which is another aspect of the cosmological argument, on and on and on. Now, that's not my point tonight, to establish the arguments for the existence of God, although I think it is a very profitable thing to do. Maybe another time we'll have that opportunity. But what I'm just trying to point out to you is that God was before the beginning. He is the uncreated one. God has the quality that theologians call aseity. Aseity is the power of self-existence. His existence depends on nothing else or no one else. I like how Jesus phrased this of Himself in the Gospel of John. When Jesus said these words, maybe they will sound familiar to it, He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Jesus was saying, I have my life and myself. Nobody has power over it other than me. That means he's God. He has that quality of being that we call a deity. Listen, our lives are so fragile, are they not? Our lives can be taken from us in a moment. We are a breath or a heartbeat or a tiny little blood clot away from perishing, each one of us. We could die. Our physical lives are so fragile. But Jesus could not die unless he willingly gave up his life. Willingly. Because he had this great power, this great characteristic of deity that we call aseity. God existed before the beginning. Now, I can't ask you to picture this in your mind. But as much as somebody can picture a concept, picture the idea of eternity past, maybe just sort of stars and all that kind of stuff that you see up there, right? I don't know why we associate that with eternity past, but we do. Eternity past. And in the midst of eternity past, there is God. Well, what else can we say about that? Well, this is the second point. The second point we can say is that not only was there God, but there was God in heaven. Three persons. And for this, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. And we're going to take a look at verse 5 and verse 24. You know, John chapter 17 is one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer where we are given a window of intimacy into the soul of Jesus and the relationship that He had with God the Father you, you really feel when you get into John chapter 17 like you're walking on holy ground because you see Jesus bear His soul before His Father in heaven. And in John chapter 17, part of His bearing of soul is He reveals stuff to us about His intimate relationship with the Father that has, if I could say it, cosmological significance. This is what He says. Look at verse 5 of John chapter 17. He says, And now, O Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What does that say? Before Genesis 1-1, right? Before Genesis 1-1, the Father and the Son shared glory. That means that the Trinity existed before the beginning. Now if you go down to verse 24 of the same chapter, look at this. He says, I'm amazed by this. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that beautiful? There existed a love relationship between the persons of the Trinity before there was anything else in existence. And what I find this fascinating, the aspect of this that I find fascinating, is that even if this were not clearly mentioned by the Scriptures, it would be a logical necessity. Think about it. If there were a time when there was God in the singular, God and God alone, not God in the sense of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. If there was one unity being alone, no other person than one person, God alone in the universe, then there would be a time... When God was not love. Love necessitates having an object of love, right? Something outside of yourself that you give that love to. And since God is eternal and God is love, we could logically make the deduction that the members of the Trinity existed before time began. And I don't know about you, but I just find this wonderful to think about. Wonderful to think that in this eternity past, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sharing the most intimate and sweet fellowship one with one another. Isn't that beautiful? So there we have that. We have God existing before the beginning, and we have the Trinity existing in a relationship of love and fellowship. God in three persons before the beginning And then there came forth something else. Now for this, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. From the Gospel of John, you'll just go right and you'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's great letter to the Ephesians. We're going to start at verse 9 of chapter 1. Now, I draw from this particular passage in Ephesians chapter 1. That not only was God before the beginning, and not only was there God in three persons existing in a relationship of love and fellowship, but that there was also a purpose in the heart of God. God had a purpose. God had something that he wanted to accomplish. Look at it here, starting at verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. All right, now Paul's writing through the Ephesians, right? And he's saying that God has made something known to us. The mystery of His will, picking it up again here in verse 9, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, it pleased God to reveal this to us. He had a purpose to reveal this to us. Now verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Friends, I'm here to tell you that verse 10 contains some of the most deep, uh, profound theology that the Bible contains. I want to read it again. Let's look at it carefully. Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of... This is God's purpose that He has revealed to us by the mystery of His will... That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in him. Now, without specifically saying it in this passage, I think that this purpose existed before the foundation of his will. Paul is, uh, for the foundation of the world, God is explaining to us through the Apostle Paul that what belongs to us under the riches of His grace, which he's mentioned in the previous verses, that God has a great plan and purpose that at one time was hidden, but is now revealed to us in Jesus. And through the Apostle Paul, God calls us to consider the greatness of His great plan of the ages and our place in that plan. He talks about a dispensation there, right? In verse 10. That dispensation, that ancient Greek word that is translated that in my New King James Version, it has the idea of a plan or a strategy. It's the way things are laid out, the way things are established or categorized or planned out. And God has a plan. It's that He would do this. Look at it again in verse 10. That He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in Him. God's ultimate plan, His purpose is to bring together, that is to ultimately resolve all things together in Jesus Christ. And I made a tell you, Prince, that's gonna happen. At the end of it all, before we get done with this series, and we're in the book of Revelation and looking at chapters twenty-one and twenty-two, you're gonna see all things resolved in Jesus Christ. Now, when I say that, there are some people who get the mistaken idea of what we call universalism from that. Universalism means the idea that in the end, everybody is saved. Oh, people who reject Christ and people who live sinful, God-rejecting lives, they get a little slap on the wrist. But at the end, they're all brought in because it says all things are resolved in Him. But ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world but He's also the judge of the world. And all things will be resolved in Jesus Christ, either as Savior or as judge. And in this way, I would tell you that even the lake of fire, even an eternity separated from God, is a way of resolving things in Christ, in Christ as judge. I would much prefer, and God would much prefer it in your life, if you would have it resolved in your life with Jesus Christ as Savior, as saving you from your sins instead of judging you in your sins. But the idea of gathering together as it's used there in verse 10 has the idea of uniting or summing up. It was used in the ancient world for the process of adding together a column of figures and making the sum down at the bottom. Paul's idea is that God is going to make everything add up at the end. And right now he's in the process of coming to that final figure. When I think about this, I get the picture in my mind of a professor working on a huge blackboard, right? And can you picture that detailed scientific and mathematical notations all over that blackboard, right? And there's just figures and figures and filling it out and filling it out. And, as we, and then he stops midway through the program. He's, he's writing out the problem. And just like any brilliant professor could do, before he has even completely written out the problem, what does he do? He walks down to the end of the blackboard and he writes out the solution. Now, you and I would go, how can such a mind do that? How can the man announce the solution before he's even written out the problem? Because, listen, this professor knows the problem frontwards and backwards, right? This is the most brilliant uh, planner, organizer, that the world, that the universe has ever seen, and that's exactly what God is doing. And you and I look at the blackboard, and it looks meaningless to us, but it's full of meaning and import to God, who is writing out the problem, and I mean that in both senses, right? The problems and the problem in a mathematical sense. He's writing out the problem of the universe on that blackboard, and he's telling you right now what the answer is. He's going to sum up, he's going to resolve all things together in Jesus Christ. And He wants you to be a part of that resolution. This is the great resolution and deliverance that even the creation groans for that day when every wrong will be righted and every matter resolved according to God's holy love and God's holy justice. And this great God who makes such an amazing plan, He wants you to have a share in it. Do you want me to show you this? Look at verse 11. In the very same context, he's talking about this great panoramic purpose that God has for all of creation that he established before time ever began. And then in verse 11, he says, In him we also have obtained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That eternal purpose, that eternal plan connects with you individually as a believer. You have an inheritance in it. You have a connection to it by the counsel of His will and that you are part of that, that you should be to the praise of His glory. One of those marks on the blackboard is you. You find your resolution, both as an individual and as a part as a whole, in Jesus Christ Christ. Himself. And when will it happen? It will happen, if you notice in verse 10, in the fullness of the times. When everything has been fulfilled, when it's all been accomplished together, that's when God will reveal the final outworking of this eternal purpose. But make no mistake about it, He's revealed the answer to the problem to us already. All things will be summed up in Jesus Christ. Now, if this was God's overarching plan, if this was his overarching purpose for creating everything, right? I mean, after all, think about it. There is God existing before the beginning. He's in this relationship of love and fellowship between the three members, the three persons of the Trinity. And God has to decide to create everything. And he has to have a purpose for it, right? By the way, doesn't that strike you as just a bit strange? Why spoil that beautiful love and fellowship, right? Don't you wish you could go back to God and say, God, are you sure you knew what you were doing? You sure seem to make a lot of headaches for yourself in creating this whole thing. Now, of course, we're speaking out of a very human analogy, right? Because I can assure you of one thing. God has never had a headache. It's never bothered God for a moment. But we look at it through our human lenses, so to speak. And we wonder why God would go to all the trouble. Friends, He's telling you why. Because He wants to bring glory and attention and credit to Himself and His own great nature throughout all creation through this great plan and purpose that He's established in Jesus Christ. And He's told us many specific things about this plan. Do you understand that? That, that, that He marked out before Genesis 1-1. It, it's going to surprise you as we go through these passages tonight to see how many aspects to the plan God established before He ever created the world. I'll show you one aspect to it. That this plan, the strategy for accomplishing His work, it, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says this, that the plan included the work of the coming of Jesus. We read here, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, what does that say about Jesus? That He was foreordained, His coming, His work, His ministry, before Genesis 1-1 was ever a fact, before God created the world, before the foundation of the world. He was foreordained. Don't think for a minute that God said, all right, I'm going to try this creation business, and there He is looking up in heaven, and Adam and Eve blow it. And God says, oh no, what am I going to do now? Well, I don't know. Um, I'll send them, you know, I'll tell them to be better. And they don't get better. And then, oh, I've got to flood the world. And what am I going to do now? I know. I'll send them the Ten Commandments. Oh, he sends Charlton Heston down to bring them the Ten Commandments and all of that. And as if God is saying, well, I'll try this. Well, that didn't work. Well, I'll try this. Well, then that didn't work. Well, what am I going to do? Well... I've tried everything else in the cupboard. I may as well send Jesus. No, friends, it wasn't like that for a moment. For ordained before the foundation of the world was the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ and His great ministry. He was manifest in these last times, but He was foreordained before Genesis 1.1. Well, that's one aspect of the plan, but here's another aspect of the plan, the sacrificial death of Jesus. You find this reference in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where it says this, it describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Can you let that sink in just for a moment? That God knew, that God understood and in a sense had Jesus sacrificed in his heart and in his mind before Genesis 1.1. Oh, now God had to prepare the fullness of time until that sacrifice was finally made on the cross at Calvary. But God knew it would come. Before the foundation of the world, it was as if the Lamb of God was slain and the sacrifice would be made at Calvary. That's awesome, isn't it? Not only did God know that Jesus would be sent, but He knew that the Son would be slain in a sacrificial death. It was as if it was an accomplished fact from the very beginning of creation. I'll tell you something else about this plan. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Look at this verse. It speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Before time began, right? That's our little indicator that this happened before Genesis 1.1. God promised that eternal life would be given to some people, that people would enjoy eternal life and be with Him in eternity forever. That was in the heart, it was in the mind of God before Genesis 1-1, before the world was ever created. We can be even more specific that this plan included the destination of heaven for those who would receive eternal life. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, it says this, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Now, many times we like to read the verse and talk about this great statement that Jesus made to his disciples before he left. He said that I'm going before you to prepare a place for you, right? And we like to think how great it is that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been preparing a place for us. And that's wonderful to think about, isn't it? But do you understand what Matthew chapter 25 verse 34 tells us? How long has He been preparing that place? Before He ever created the world, He's been preparing heaven for us. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that just sink down and stir your soul just a little bit? Talk about a prepared place. It hasn't just been prepared for 2,000 years. It's been prepared since before time began, before Genesis 1-1. This reminds us of what an extremely perfect and fulfilling place Heaven will be. It will be perfectly suited for us. Here's another aspect. The plan included the use of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We read there, Paul writes, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages, that's our phrase there, before the ages for our glory. Do you know what that means? When Paul's talking about this wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, he's talking about the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. God ordained that Jesus would come. God ordained that Jesus would be sacrificed. God ordained that eternal life would be given. God ordained that heaven would be prepared. And God ordained the message of the gospel itself would be the way that people get to heaven. And He did all of that before Genesis 1-1. As a matter of fact, you could take it even deeper. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says this, that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Isn't that beautiful? This plan of God, established before Genesis 1-1, included the giving of grace God's undeserved favor and credit, giving that to His people. You know, we are so unworthy of the grace of God that He had to give it to us before He created anything. That's the grace you receive. He gives it to you before He created anything. Before time began, before God created anything, God knew of your existence and the grace that He would give you. Now, why would He withdraw it then? Why would He take it away from you? Don't we have wonderful rest in that? Yes, Lord. You planned it from way back then. We have this confidence in you. Then finally, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, that the plan included the choosing of some to be His people. We read this, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Remember I told you that God saw you and knew you before He ever created you. He knew you and, crea- and, and loved you before He ever created the world. That's the greatness of God's love. That's the greatness of His attachment to you That before time began, He showered this love, He showered this grace upon His people. I know, we stand back from this and we say, God, You sure did a lot before the beginning, but we're not done with it yet. Also, before Genesis 1-1, God created angelic beings. Now, how do we know that? We know that from a passage in Job, Job chapter 38 verses 4 through 7. I do hope that sometime in the coming years we'll be able to go through the book of Job together on a Wednesday night. That would be great. You would love the book of Job, but at the same time it would drive you crazy. It drives you crazy because the book of Job, at the beginning it's thrilling, at the end it's thrilling, in the middle, you know what it is? It's a lot of blah, blah, blah from human wisdom. And you make your way through it. You read it. You study it. I'll preach it. We'll go through it. And before we get to the exciting end, you'll go, I am so tired of this blah, blah, blah from these guys. And God will say, good, that's exactly what I want you to be. Because now comes the end. And this passage from Job chapter 38, this part of the great glorious end of the book of Job. Here he says this, starting at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is God speaking to Job. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know who stretched the line upon it to what were its foundation fastened or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us, that angelic beings saw the creation of the world and they rejoiced. Angelic beings there are referred to in verse 7 as morning stars and sons of God, which are Old Testament or Hebraic figures for angelic beings. They saw God creating the earth in Genesis 1-1 and they rejoiced in it. Now, by the way, I'm using the term angelic beings deliberately to include both faithful and fallen angelic beings. Normally, we think of faithful angelic beings as angels, and we think of fallen angelic beings as demons or demonic beings, but that's something for us to talk about a little bit later in our series. So also, before Genesis 1-1, God creates the angelic beings and they see His glorious work of creation. But then we have another aspect to consider. And this, I want you to turn back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. To me, this is some of the most interesting uh, aspect of the things that we're going to go through here tonight, right here at Ephesians chapter 3. I would say that God ordained a way That this plan that He has... Now, remember the plan? You remember the purpose? The purpose was to resolve all things in Jesus Christ. To make everything add up together in Him. God has a way to preview or to test that plan before it ever comes to its final completion. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Starting here at verse 8, Ephesians chapter 3. To me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was entrusted with riches, right? And God gave him this, that he would preach among the Gentiles these unsearchable riches of Christ. Now verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages... Ah, we like that phrase, right? Genesis 1-1. From the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now we're up closer on the edge of our seat, right? Paul's going to reveal something to us, something that was hidden from the beginning of the ages. Now here it is, verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I need to break that down for us. Let's go back to verse 10, the beginning of it. To the intent. God has a purpose, an intention, right? What's God's intention? That now, now meaning for us, under the new covenant, if you want to call it the church age, into this covenant community, the new covenant we're part of now, God has an intention that now, the manifold wisdom of God, do you know what that phrase means, the manifold wisdom of God? It means the multifaceted, uh, many-aspected... That's not a word, is it? Aspected? Is it really? Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's got a lot of components to it, a lot of angles to it. The, The multifaceted wisdom of God... And By the way, you know the wisdom of God is multifaceted, don't you? There's so many aspects, so many angles to it, that this multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known... God wants to make known His glorious, many-faceted wisdom. And how does He want to make it known? Well, well maybe He could just write a book, right? Well, He did write as a book, but that's not exactly what Paul's talking about. I mean, maybe He could just put on a television program or a movie or something like that to show His wisdom. No, no, no. Look at what He does. God's plan before Genesis 1-1 was to display this multifaceted wisdom. How is He going to display it? By the church. To the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Let's consider who those people are, right? Who those beings are. First of all, principalities and powers. Ladies and gentlemen, in the New Testament, those are... I don't want to say code words, but almost. Those are references to angelic beings. Okay, we're back to angelic beings, are we not? God wants to reveal something to angelic beings. He wants to reveal His multifaceted wisdom to angelic beings. And how does He want to reveal that wisdom to them? By the church. Who are those people? It's you. Do you understand what this is saying? Before God created the earth, He had a plan, He had a purpose, and as part of that, He would use you to display His wisdom to angelic beings. Have you ever thought about that? That your life is a lesson for angels? God is teaching them through you and through us. Now, in the one part, this doesn't surprise us at all because the Bible tells us in several different places, the Bible tells us that angels are present at our gatherings and they long to look in to what we're doing. I don't mean to freak anybody out here tonight. But I tell you the truth. There are angelic beings... Among us right now, don't look to your neighbor left or right. (laughs) I'm saying that these are beings that are from the world of the spirit. But they are certainly present with us right now. And they are looking at you. They are looking at me. They're looking at our conduct together. Of course, they're around us at our individual lives as well. But God wants to teach them through us as individuals and through us collectively as a church. He wants to teach them our excuse me, His manifold wisdom through our lives. You know, I earnestly believe that there are some things that we go through in our life that have no other explanation than to say that God is using our life as a lesson to angelic beings. Is this not exactly the message of the book of Job? That is exactly what God did with Job! Job's crying out to God, God, why? Why? And later on, I believe Job understood it, although the book of Job itself never tells us that, James, uh, that Job understood this. But I would suppose that he did, that his life was being used as a lesson to angelic beings. You know, maybe you don't like that. You say, listen, I don't want to go through any trial for the sake of teaching an angelic being. <laughs> Look, I'm just Sorry. It's part of the package. It's part of being this, this a member of this God's eternal plan. We're surrounded by these invisible beings and they look intently on us. And right here, Paul draws back an invisible curtain and hi, that hides these beings. And he does it in the same way that Elisha prayed at Dothan. Do you remember that prayer? He said, Lord open His eyes that He may see. And then His servant saw the hills surrounded with angelic beings and we would see the same things if God were to miraculously open our eyes. And what do they learn from us? They learn many things. Sometimes Christians get the crazy idea that God saved them and that God works in their life because sometimes they're such great people. No, the angels see right through that. The angels know why God is working in your life and they know how great He is and they know how weak we are. Listen, we may think that our lives are small and insignificant. Those angels know better. They know what an absolutely important role you play. Do you understand this? Look, you may be an insignificant person on this earth. I'm not going to give you some kind of self-help, psychological, you know, business, about everybody's important in this. Listen, there are people around us in this world that on a human level, they're regarded as insignificant, unimportant, right? And you may be one of those people. But I'll tell you, not, not in the view of eternity. You have a solemn, and sacred and absolutely essential responsibility to be part of God's great plan of instructing angelic beings through your life as an individual and through our life together as a church. And this tells us that even though on a human, carnal level there may be insignificant people, in God's economy there are none. The angels know this, do you? It's as if God is doing this great drama and we are part of it. I like what John Stott said. Let me read this. He says this, It is as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage. And the church members in every land are the actors. God Himself has written the play and He directs it and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You have a part in God's production. How is this so? Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished. Listen, the great mystery reveals and furthers God's eternal purpose in Jesus that Paul previously described in the letter to the Ephesians, that in the fullness of time, God would gather together, sum up, resolve all things in Jesus. You know, I told you about this picture of a great big blackboard and God is writing out the problem and then He stops. And before the problem is even completely written out, He goes and He writes out the solution, right? Now you could say that that blackboard represents everything of all creation. And God is saying, I can resolve that problem Look at how I'm working in the church right now. And that's how he wants to bring us all together, resolved as one in Jesus Christ. And you know what? I look out upon these people and he's doing it. He brings us together. People in this room, we would never hang out together if it weren't for us and who we are in Jesus Christ, right? But because He's brought us together, because we're resolved together in one, here we are in an atmosphere of love and fellowship and fellow care. And this is just a wonderful picture. Can I say that? I think the angels are learning a good lesson tonight right here being among us. And I pray that every time when we gather, we would show them just such a thing, both our lives as individuals and collectively. This is God's plan, His purpose, His his, his test marketing, so to speak, of this great plan of the universe. He's doing it right here, right now, in the church. Well, all in all, that's what I come up with what with God, God did before Genesis 1-1. And then what happens? You come to Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world out of nothing, All the power, all the resources of creation resided in Himself. He didn't have to go down to the home improvement store. He didn't have to go to this place or that place. God had the power of everything within Himself. He created things using the Word of God and creating them out of nothing. And we know from Genesis chapter 1 that when God created everything, it was good, right? There is All these things happened before the beginning. And then Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world and it's good. And then at the end of it all, it's not so good, right? Something went wrong. In our next time together, next Wednesday night, we're going to look at what went wrong with the perfect world that God created. But I want you to notice one thing here. God planned the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the sin of the world and the salvation of man before He created anything. This assumes the fall before it ever happened. This means that in God's plan, He made provision for sin and redemption before mankind ever sinned. a matter of fact, before mankind was ever created, God made provision for sin. This corrects one of the great misunderstandings that people have about God's plan. I'm going to mention this tonight, but I'm going to develop even further next week. I don't mind repeating this because it's so important. People have the misunderstanding. They think that the greatest good, that God's real goal, is the world of innocence. Oh, we're just trying to get back To the innocence of the Garden of Eden. No. People do that though. They look at the earth before the fall and they say that's where God wants to get us back to. No, that's it. God wants to and has always wanted to bring forth something greater than innocence. God wants to bring forth redemption. Here it is. Redeemed man is greater than innocent man. I'll put it another way. We gain more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. And this is what God wanted to accomplish through His eternal plan. Well, we'll have to leave it off right there. But you know, people want to know, what do I do with personal application, right? How do I apply these things personally? There are many... Personal applications, you can draw from this this evening, right? There's some mental adjustment that needs to take place in our minds, right? That we see that we have an important place in what God is doing and that God has a plan. And if He has a plan for eternity, He has a plan for my life. And both aspects are important. And, And I'm not insignificant. Even though on a human level I may be, in God's plan I'm not. But I want to draw another, if I could say, even a greater point of application from all of this. Shouldn't we apply this just by worshiping him? Shouldn't our hearts just rise up and say, God, you are so great. You are so powerful. You're so mighty. You're so majestic. Isn't that worthy? Well, that's what we should do right now, then. So I'm going to pray. Trevor and the team are going to come on up. We deliberately planned the worship set here this evening so we'd have some time for worship at the end, right? Let's do this. Let's worship this great God. Should we not? Father, that's our prayer. We, we just stand in awe of who You are and what You've done. We stand in awe of Your eternal plan of the ages and how You even thought of us that we would be a part of it. So thank You, Lord. We want to receive it. We want to apply it. But Lord, right here, right now, we want to worship You for it. You are a great God filled with glory. And you deserve our praise. So receive it now as we give you the honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, uh, during the second song of our worship time, I'm going to ask people on the prayer team to come up. Maybe you want to pray with somebody here tonight. Maybe God's been speaking to you about something that you have a misconception about or, or a pain in your heart that you see in a different light in view of God's eternal plan. You come up. You come up when the prayer team comes up. And I'm just going to ask the prayer team, you you hold back, come up during the second song, and when you see them come up, that's your cue. You come come on up for prayer.